0: This is Art Matters, I'm Farron Gibson. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. We have a website and it's artuk.org. Go there to view digitized images of artworks from across the UK. You'll also find interesting articles and a buzzing community of art detectives who are solving real art mysteries. If you're feeling sociable, you can follow Art UK and myself on Twitter and Instagram as well. Gather around as we explore the intriguing art of tarot. It has its origins in playing cards, which were first invented in China in the 9th century. From there, cards spread across Persia, Egypt, and into Europe. It was in 15th century Italy that we have the first documented evidence of what we now know as tarot.
1: So the aristocracy decided to add an extra suit with very vivid pictures and allegorical images and beautiful images. And that suit in the game would trump the other cards. Trump means triumph. The original name for the tarot set was triumphs, so Italian for triumphs. That's Rachel Pollock, author and tarot expert. And that became very popular and so over time it developed into other kinds of things. It didn't become known as an occult system until the late 18th century and developed in the 19th century, the 20th century. It's not clear when it became used for fortune telling. There's no records of it early on, but a lot of people think that if you have any kind of thing like cards or any kind of system of chance, people will end up using it for fortune telling. So we don't really know. There's some visual evidence of women doing uh, card readings pretty early. So whether they were tarot cards or not, that's unclear.
0: Card playing and fortune telling became popular subjects in Flemish paintings and eventually gained traction in 16th century Rome via the work of Caravaggio. In particular, his paintings The Fortune Teller and The Card Sharps helped to grow his budding reputation. Later on, we can see several 19th century examples of genre paintings on the Art UK website that show cards being used for divination. They each feature a woman card reader and only one example I found in the Tate collection includes a man amongst the sitters. One watercolor by Henry Mainel Ream in the Pinley House Gallery and Museum shows three women gathered around cards spread on the floor. The eldest of the three appears to be reading the fortune of the woman seated across from her. Behind the fortune teller are a black cat and a raven, symbols often connected with magic. As Rachel said, the triumph cards were originally part of card games, but this use evolved over time.
1: Certainly as soon as someone came up with the idea that they had an occult origin from ancient Egypt, and that was in 1781 in France, people started using them otherwise and and claiming secret meanings for them. And there was a very famous fortune teller named Etela. That was his name, Aliette, spelled backwards, and they'd like to do things like that in the occult tradition in France. And Etela began doing fortune telling right away. Because he was doing fortune telling with playing cards and other cards that were meant for fortune telling that originated around that period of time. I guess the 18th century. And as soon as this idea came out that tarot was a cult in the Egyptian, the tale immediately began to develop his own set of tarot cards, which were not playing cards. It was specific for fortune telling.
0: Atela helped popularize tarot with broader audiences and helped develop what are known today as the major and minor arcana cards in the tarot deck. Arcana is Latin for secrets, so let's demystify what these cards really mean.
1: The terms major, minor, arcana are modern terms, so that already is set up to suggest that the cards all have secret meanings, which was not originally the most common view of things. We don't. It may have been We don't know that for a fact. The major arcana are those 22 extra cards, the extra trump card suit. And there's an unnumbered card called the fool in the game of tarot. The fool is almost like its own category. But the other cards, one to 21, are the major arcana or the trump cards, the triumph cards. And then the four suits are, they're called wands, cups, swords, and modern usage, pentacles, and old usage, coins. And those suits, the suits consist of numbered cards, A through ten, and the four court cards, page, knight, queen, and king. The major arcana cards consist of all named cards, named and images of some allegorical and some social, and those names have changed over time as well. So the original image for card number two was an image of a woman wearing the triple crown of a pope, and she became known as the La Papesse or so the female pope, but now she's known as the high priestess. And so
0: where, where does the imagery come from? Is it from mythologies that people might know, or is it its own thing entirely to itself?
1: Well, a lot of it is images from the period of the Renaissance, images that would be known to the people at that time. But some of them were clearly not mythological or archetypal, but symbolic. There's a card of death, for example, the figure of death cutting down heads. There's a card of lovers. So some of the images are very clear images of what they are. And others, it's hard hard to say exactly. There's a card, the chariot, for example, someone in a chariot. And that could have been a reference to processions that were done, kind of like spiritual carnivals that were common in Italy at that time. But also it could be going back to Plato and the image of the mind. Plato said that the mind was like a chariot drawn by a black and white horse always trying to pull it apart. And so that image came into tarot fairly early from the original chariot image. And so there are a lot of things that border between late medieval, early renaissance, allegorical images, images of virtues like strength, and images of religious symbolism like the Last Judgment, but then veered into a more kind of an occult kind of view.
0: One modern tarot theory is that the major arcana cards tell a story, beginning with the fool and ending with the world. Rachel explains.
1: People call it, sometimes it's called the fool's journey compared to the hero's journey from Joseph Campbell. And the Fool's Journey, the Fool is that unnamed, unnumbered character, rather. Sometimes down in modern decks, it's called Zero, so that in a sense, it precedes the other cards. So people see that the Fool makes a journey, beginning with the magician, and then the High Priestess, or the female Pope, and so on. Goes through various crises, through different levels, and finally ends up at the World card, which is an image of liberation. And in between, there were these levels. So the first level is the magician through the chariot. And in my way of seeing it, and other people see it similarly is that this is the level of the challenges of everyday life so the first two cards the magician and the high priestess are the qualities of light and darkness basic archetypes male and female etc then it moves into the empress and the emperor which are nature and society but also mother and father and it progresses through other cards to the lovers and the chariot and so the lovers are when we romance issues in our life and so on and then a lot of modern decks will make card eight strength and so this is having the strength, to my mind, having the strength to leave behind your achievements in some way, to go to go internally, go inside yourself, to discover who you really are. And that follows through to um, the card of justice and the hindman, which is a surrender to my mind, and then the death card. So the death card overthrows past ideas, past images of self. And after that comes temperance, which is the last card of that middle level, 8 to 14. And temperance shows an angel. And so this is, in a sense, having gone past the fear of death and the terror of death to release your true self, and you feel you can feel a connection to a kind of divine energy. But then after that, you would see that that would be the final culmination. Then after that, it moves to the last seven cards, which begin with the devil, and then with the world. And so to me, those cards have a kind of Beyond the personal, there's sort of a transpersonal kind of journey because they're dealing with the issues of existence, the issues of what is the world about. And it goes beyond the personal to exploring deeper, powerful possibilities. I often call it the liberation of light because the devil, particularly in modern tower decks, is all in darkness. It's the only card where there's no light. Then the tower has lightning overthrowing a tower in darkness, but there's lightning and fire. And then it goes the star, the moon, the sun. So ever-increasing light. So our light to moonlight to sunlight. Then you get that card called judgment, which is, I call it the light of the angels, the light of spirit. And finally, the world is, I call that the light of self. Self in the larger term, not as a small self, but capital S self, as Jung put it. The idea that, you know, you're connecting to a self that exists in terms of the universe.
0: These ideas lend themselves to rich imagery, and early hand painted decks could be ornate with vivid colors and gold accents. The VA have a small selection of cards by Antonio Gigadnara in their collection dating to the 1490s. It's a good example of the elaborate detail that went into some deck designs.
1: They were around the size of large playing cards, and these were painted very beautifully. The most well known early decks are two by a man named Bonifacio Bembo painted around 1450, and both for the Visconti family of Milan, and the Viscontis were the ruling family of Milan.
0: The Visconti Sforza card decks are some of the most complete early examples, and they're split across collections around the world. Notably, the decks are missing two particular cards.
1: There is no devil card and no Tower card. And some people, there's an interesting argument that goes on, and the argument has to do with whether or not those cards were taken out, or stolen, destroyed. Some people say that, well, because they were scary images, people thought they were not proper for ladies of the court to be using. It's more likely they just were never there. More likely that Bembo did not have that in the deck.
0: Well, those are two of the more negative cards to exactly. pull, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In Vasari's series, The Lives of Artists, he wrote that Italian Renaissance painter Andrea Mantegna made a set of triumph card prints. This possibly led to the double misattribution of a 15th century deck known as the Mantegna Tarocchi, which are now believed not to have been produced by the artist and not to be tarot cards. Though there is an overlap in some of the imagery, such as the knight, pope, sun, moon, and other themes, the Mantegna Tarocchi are now believed to be instructional cards teaching astrology, mythology, and other subjects. They seem to hold some creative influence, though, as artists including Albrecht Dürer
1: made copies of this deck. It's actually a kind of allegorical teaching tack, but it calls itself tarot, which is significant because it means that even back in the very early days, people started seeing the word tarot as a word for any set of cards that had beautiful images. So not just the game, but also the idea of a teaching set. Astrological images, mythological images, spiritual images.
0: The prevailing pattern for tarot cards began with the Tarot of Marseille, which was developed after the cards became popular in France. The earliest surviving deck by Jean Noble dates to the 1650s and is less decorative than some of its Italian ancestors. This effectively set the standard for the style of cards we know today. It's in these decks, for example, that we begin to see titles of cards written on the front. Once there began to be occult meanings attached to the deck in the 1780s, new imagery was introduced to tarot iconography.
1: The biggest shift that happened was in 1909. With the publication of a book called The Pictorial Key to the Tarot. And the images in that deck were drawn by a woman named Pamela Coleman Smith. And she was drawing under the direction of Arthur Edward Waite, who wrote the book, The Pictorial Key to the Tarot. And then the next year they published a deck together. But the deck was published by the publishing company called Rider. And that deck is now the most famous deck in the world, often called Rider Waite, Rider Waite Smith, or just Rider Tarot. Right, it was just the name of the British publisher. And in that deck, Waite kept to the Marseille images, but he shifted them enough that it really was dramatically different in certain ways. So, for instance, the Lover's card in the Marseille deck shows a man seemingly stuck between two women trying to choose. Some people say actually it's his mother is the older woman and the younger woman is his girlfriend. And this is a question of, you know, do you stay with mom or do you go off and on your own? But a lot of people assumed that the also were representing vice and virtue. That the older woman who was not very attractive was virtue, and you should choose her. But the young, attractive woman was vice, and that was temptation. Meanwhile, we see Cupid, or Eros, about to shoot an arrow at him. And the, the implication there, therefore, is in fact, it's not a conscious choice. The choice is made by desire. But that became different in the writer's act. The Rider deck had a picture of Adam and Eve standing naked in the garden with the trees behind them. And the angel had his arms up above them. I see it as blessing them. Some people see it as the angel punishing them. But to me, it's a very strong image of blessing. And other cards were different as well in the Rider-Waite deck. And the Rider-Waite deck became the standard. So really, the vast number of modern decks, one way or another, are based upon the Rider deck.
0: Pamela Coleman Smith was born in London to American parents before living a portion of her childhood in Jamaica. She studied art at the Pratt Institute in New York before returning to London, where she worked as an illustrator. Eventually, Smith came to be in the circle of Georgia O'Keeffe and her husband, Alfred Stieglitz, who helped Smith show her work. Some of her pieces are now part of the Stieglitz-Georgia O'Keeffe archive at Yale University. Many fine artists have been inspired by the Rider Waite-Smith deck and by Tarot generally, some decks are made in the styles of artists, such as Mucha and Dürer, but some artists, like Dali, actually
1: designed their own decks. It was published in the 80s. He was very sick at the time. So it not, it's not clear exactly when they were put together. Some people, it seems to be some possibility they were done earlier, but didn't get a publisher for a while. And these were very beautiful images. What, basically what that deck consists of. I wrote the first book for that deck, and for quite a while it was the only, only book available. So those pictures he took kind of classic art, classic European art. And he would have kind of quotations in a sense, like a, a part of the picture, sometimes a whole picture, more likely just a, a character from the picture. And then he would put in kind of like a few of his own Dali-esque surreal kind of elements, like sort of ectoplasm imagery or something, you know, kind of strange and mysterious. And so that was the deck that became the Dali Tarot. And then Leonor Carrington, the famous surrealist artist, did it, deck, I think she did it privately and it's now going to be published or it's going to be an exhibit at least. And I was just, I just spent some time with the curator and we were going over card by card, comparing Carrington's cards to traditional imagery and also the writer cards to see where they overlapped and also connecting Carrington's cards to her own paintings. Otherwise, she would show an image that would be sort of standard in a certain sense, but there'd be these various Carrington-esque kind of qualities to them. The central figure would be a woman that would be have, would have been seen in other of her paintings, and then there'd be animals that you see in her paintings, you know, various kinds of creatures. You see kinds of imagery of some of the suit emblems would be sort of changed somewhat to look like figures from her paintings, or vice versa. Figures from the tarot can be seen in some of her paintings. If you know that she's a tarot, you start recognizing things in her paintings that resemble a bit of tarot.
0: By this point, you're probably getting used to thinking of tarot as small two-dimensional prints or paintings. But French-American artist, Nikki de Sanfal, created her famous tarot garden in Italy, which is filled with tarot-inspired sculptures.
1: It took about 15 years to do it. And she invited me there a couple of times to be with her to talk about it. And we did readings about it. And I also met with her in Paris once. And so these are monumental sculptures. One of them is about four or five stories high. And then she lived in one of them, the Empress card, which is a statue of a Sphinx. And she lived in it when, in the years that she was working there. In particular, you can go inside, of course, the Empress, which, as I said, was her house when she was there. But also, when you go in, the first thing you see is a combined statue of the magician and the high priestess. And you go, actually you go inside that and you climb up inside it and look at the eye of the magician. It's very powerful. And then she did issue a set of major iconic cards that once the opening was done. And I think that set of cards are still available.
0: What I find interesting about tarot imagery is that it's tricky to point to its specific origins. It seems to be a fluid set of iconography that can be interpreted in different ways. And maybe that's what makes it so interesting for artists.
1: What's interesting, I think, for artists is the fact that it's very vivid imagery, but also mysterious. You know, all these people claim to know exactly what it means, but you no, know, it's like any kind of thing that's spiritual or mystical. If it was possible to know exactly what it means, there'd be no question. It's always mysterious, always open. So I think that draws artists who want to explore something, who want to explore imagery that's evocative and has connections to spiritual traditions, but is not absolutely hard and fast.
0: I've included loads of images in the article for this episode, so do head over to ArtUK.org to check those out. Rachel Pollack has written extensively on tarot, so I'll also link to where you can find more info about her books if you're interested in learning more. Also, the ArtUK shop has a joyous set of Art Oracle cards with inspirational life advice and illustrations inspired by artists like Matisse, Frida Kahlo, and more. Definitely check those out if you want some lighthearted fun. If you like this episode, you may like a previous episode we did on astrology, so do give that a listen if you haven't already. Finally, if you're a longtime listener of this series and haven't given us a rating yet, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. As always, thank you for listening, and please join us again next time.